where did you grow up? I still haven't. Ah, oh, excellent. Yeah. excellent. I think it's Good. the definition of mature. Two things about maturity. I know we know it's nothing about uh, the one is that you know, I want to become really mature just about five minutes before I die. Um, but one of the other things, and, and it does tie back, is that I, I was reading something last year about that a true sign of maturity is when you actually say no. When you've actually gotten to the point where you feel so comfortable about where you stand on an issue that you say, no, I'm not going to do that. No more. I can't take enough of that. That You've crossed all of my, my spiritual, my emotional, my, my philosophical, my, all those boundaries. I've said no. And that all comes back to the low carb. You know, when oh, now nearly 10 years ago, I started talking about the perils of sugar, which rolled into sugar, carbs, seed oils and that whole role of inflammation. And when everyone around me was telling me that I was wrong, I mean, you know, my medical colleagues were saying, look, you've lost the plot about this sugar stuff. Would you get off that bandwagon? I you know you can't treat diabetes by diet and lifestyle, even though it's a type two diabetes is a lifestyle related disease. And, you know, as I've often say, once you see the results of low carving, particularly in diabetes, but across a range of issues, you can't unsee it. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean that I haven't seen it. And so that word no came into my existence several years ago, but only last year I realised it was actually a sign of maturity, that you actually, once you've worked out, no more, I'm not going to put up with that. And so um, the without being completely and utterly arrogant, but that's what surgeons are good for, but I mean, without being completely arrogant, when I saw all this stuff, I said, we have to do it. And I don't care how many obstacles we're gonna come up against, I'm right, you're wrong. Welcome to The Herd and thanks for listening. We're happy to help you have informed conversations with your healthcare providers. But please do not treat anything we say in this or any of our episodes as medical advice. Even when the guests are physicians, they're not your physician. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating, and follow, and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. Today, I'm so pleased to be joined by Dr. Gary Fetke, all the way from the future. It's Sunday morning, and it's Saturday afternoon here, so figure that one out. Wonders of technology. How are you doing, Gary? Uh, good morning, <laughs> slash good afternoon. Yeah, good. I'm, I'm very well. Good. Good. We've already been having a pretty good visit, so we figure we better start on this or we're going to miss all the best stuff, including the fact that I'm already behind in the score. Maybe <laughs> we'll explain that as we go along. For those who don't know who Gary Fetke is, um, he's an orthopedic surgeon practicing in Tasmania, Australia. He has a major interest in preventative medicine. In recent years, Gary has focused on and spoken out about the role of diet in the development of diabetes and other chronic diseases. This advocacy has not been without cost, but along with his wife, Belinda, he continues to advocate for the role of unbiased nutritional information and what it can do in addressing the many problems 
that we face between now and 2050. So welcome. Good. Well, thank you. Thanks for the welcome again. And it's good, great to catch up. I mean, we're not really seeing each other face to face as we have in the last few years, but um, you know, the, the Zoom means we can talk and uh, not have to pay too much attention to actually how we look. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, plus, especially when you just make an audio-only version of this for podcast, most people won't see us anyway. But <laughs> so, well, that's one of the great, one of the great tragedies of you know this low-carb, you know, uh, lifestyle. You know, LCHF keto is that at the end of it, I'm I'm a lot healthier, but I'm still not I'm still not good looking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the line about uh, I once was a fifty-six-year-old or whatever it was, balding, obese, pre-diabetic, and today I'm still balding. You know, it's, yeah, right. <laughs> where's the miracle? Dang it. Um, uh, not so much. Actually, it, I'm very pleased with all the other results. So um, I, I have no problem suggesting it to people. Um, so where did you grow up? Did you grow I up still in haven't. Tasmania? I still haven't. Ah, excellent. Yeah. excellent. I think it's Good. the definition of mature. Two things about maturity. And I, we know there's nothing about uh, the one is that you know, you, I want to become really mature just about five minutes before I die. Um, but one of the other things, and, and it does tie back, is that I, I was reading something last year about that a true sign of maturity is when you actually say no. When you've actually gotten to the point where you feel so comfortable about where you stand on an issue that you say, no, I'm not going to do that. No more. I can't take enough of that. That you crossed all of my, my spiritual, my emotional, my, my philosophical, my, all those boundaries. I've said no, and that all comes back to the low carb. You know, when oh, now nearly ten years ago, I started talking about the perils of sugar, which rolled into sugar, carbs, seed oils, and that whole role of inflammation. And when it, everyone around me was telling me that I was wrong. I mean, you know, my medical colleagues were saying, look, you've lost the plot about this sugar stuff. Would you get off that bandwagon? I, you know, you can't treat diabetes by diet and lifestyle, even though it's a type 2 diabetes is a lifestyle-related disease. And, you know, as I often say, once you see the results of low carving, particularly in diabetes, but across a range of issues, you can't unsee it. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean that I haven't seen it. And so that word no came into my existence several years ago, but only last year I realized it was actually a sign of maturity, that you actually, once you've worked out, no more, I'm not going to put up with that. And so um, the, without being completely and utterly arrogant, but that's what surgeons are good for, but I mean, without being completely arrogant, when I saw all this stuff, I said, we have to do it. And I don't care how many obstacles we're going to come up against. I'm right, you're wrong. Yeah. I'm, you know, what, what, so what, what, what is the nexus between an orthopedic surgeon and diabetes? Well, it's, it's central. You know, we've got not just diabetes, we've got three quarters of the population that are probably pre-diabetic now. And just because there's a number that defines when you've got diabetes, and that's mostly dependent around the HbA1c test, which some people may know about, but nonetheless, it's just a number which is plucked out of the air. But when you really go looking at people 
and doing the right testing, which is a craft insulin test, we don't need to talk about that, you find out that three quarters of the population are probably insulin sensitive, heading towards that insulin, sorry, heading towards that insulin resistant state and are pre-diabetic. So just because you don't have diabetes, you've got the risk factors and you're going to get it if you don't look after yourself. And from an evolutionary point of view, having that state of insulin at the ready has actually been very good evolutionary-wise. Mm-hmm. We can I mean, almost go off on so many different tangents. Yes, the, yes. Um, but you as an orthopedic surgeon, diabetes comes in when you're treating advanced stages of that disease. Well, no, early uh, stages as well, Peter. The, okay. The, Glucose and sugar, which are the two, glucose and fructose, but glucose and fructose together is called sugar. Glucose and fructose in combination affect your immunity and your healing potential and your white cell activity within minutes of actually eating them. So there's one of the white cells is called neutrophils. They're actually a cell involved in the whole healing process. And if you eat carbohydrate, just 50 grams of it, it reduces their activity dramatically. If you fast, it actually improves their activity for 72 hours. So I'm operating on people all the time. And you know, ideally, I'd like them to fast for 72 hours after their operation. Nobody will ever do that. But that you can actually look at immunity and it keeps improving for hours after surgery. But what do we do when we wake patients up after an anesthetic? What's the food we give them in hospitals? We give them white bread, we give them orange juice, we give them a choc chip cookie, we give them a bit of jelly, we give them a bit of ice cream, which at a cellular level is actually slowing their immunity up. It constricts the blood vessels when you want them to be open. It gives them a high sugar, which doesn't help the healing. And then they drop down again and they feel crook an hour or two later. We do the dumbest things in medicine all the time. It's just... But on a day... So on a day-to-day basis, the, if you've got diabetes or pre-diabetes, you're at risk of more complications. You're certainly ending up with a population in society which is overweight and obese. Effectively, 90% of knee replacement patients done in Australia are overweight or obese. 74% of hip, hip replacements, that's our latest figures. Hmm. So the vast majority of people we're operating on, operating on are overweight and obese with their incumbent problems. And, and I'm, I know it's the same in the US, but you've got one surgeon advertising that their technique's better than another surgeon's. You know, robots are better than other, you know, my robot's better than your robot. And hospitals are saying that, you know, the way we treat people is better than or worse than another. It's absolute nonsense when you, in fact, realise that 90% of the population that you're operating on are overweight and obese. And that's the biggest factor that will determine outcome. So we've got to address that before we start saying that, you know, I'm a better surgeon than you're a better surgeon. It's just, this is what I find this very frustrating in medicine when particularly surgery where people are going off and, and, and insurers are paying millions and billions of dollars in band-aiding sick care when in fact we're not going back to the root cause, which is what we eat. And if what we eat improves, then our health improves we won't need the surgery and we won't develop the complications. I mean, 
I've yet to find anybody in the health insurance industry that says it's a viable one. Hmm. Hmm. So, but once upon a time, weren't you the cake judge? Oh, I think, okay, we're now playing the game again. You want to go back to one nil? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I used to be the cake judge at the hospital. Um, and in fact, if you had a broken arm, particularly children, they'd come in to say, and they'd say, how long am I in plaster? And I'd say, look, you've got six weeks in plaster if you bring me a chocolate cake. Otherwise, it's eight weeks. So you know, it was out and out bribery, but it was part of the distraction of, 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 um, of kids when you know, worried about having their plasters taken off. But on Fridays in the clinic at the hospital, I'd often have six or eight cakes that we needed to, to move around. So you know, I was a really nice guy. I'd go and you know, I, I'd take the, you know, take the best one home. I was 20 kilos heavier, which is 50 pounds heavier than where I am now. Um, I'd take the best one home. We'd take them around to the nursing staff and bribe them. Otherwise, now, in retrospect, now go out and poison everyone around me. So I am trying to make amends for that um, probably best part of 20 years of poisoning society and encouraging it to be poisoned. Fair enough. Um, but another scandalous thing I've heard you say is that you, uh, you follow a plant-based diet. Oh, absolutely. Now, yeah. Yeah, that has a certain meaning to many people today, but I think your meaning's a little different. Well, there's, I mean, I, I, I'm definitely plant-based once removed. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I like everything I eat to have actually eaten plants along the way. Um, but no, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a vegetarian. I'm, I just supplement. Right? Because I think if you're going to be a vegetarian, you have to supplement because... If you're plant-based, you are going to miss out on nutrients. So I'm a carno, ovo, lacto, pesco, pollo vegetarian. So I, I supplement with meat, eggs, dairy, um, uh, chicken and fish. Hmm. And I find that that's a, a very, very adequate supplementation. Mm -hmm. It sort of covers all my, my, my issues. Yeah, all the essentials. And then I... it, it, well, yeah, we were flying uh, across... Well, yeah, we used to, I say, used to fly across to the Northern Hemisphere every year, alternate between Europe and the US and, and give our talks. And, uh, you know, I was, I just got a bit of wind blowing in the background here. I told you it's raining, it's stormy here. Um, anyway, um, I came up with that, you know, that I'm a plant-based, you know, I'm a vegetarian. And then by the end of the flight, Belinda had put it, put it to song. So I'm absolutely lousy. I don't. If, I, don't I, I think you've seen it on on YouTube. Yeah, the, the, I am Carno Ovo. Like I said, I'm absolutely tone deaf. Um, but um, she's very clever and uh, thinks that should be the low carb anthem. Yes. Well, but I, I've, I've actually. I mean, I've actually used that. Sure. In that, we were at a, at a children's zoo um, a few years ago, and there was a young zookeeper there tending a calf and five vegan activists came at her it was quite quite ugly actually she was just a teenager working at the, the this animal it was sort of an open park one and the the, the, the five of them just swamped her and it, i actually intervened you know and i opened palms you know and i said you know look look i'm a vegetarian i'm a plant-based i'm a plant-based eater but don't give her don't give her a hard time you know, she's just a kid there that was looking after a calf 
in a, in a, in a zoo nursery. And so I actually found that I was able to very easily slip into my vegetarian mode in the defense of this young woman. I'm no hero, but it's just, you know, we're all plant-based. You know, and you know, I sent you that email about the, the, the about, it's almost, this is almost a segue into, you know, the, the similarities between um, the fuel that a cow requires and a gorilla and a human. Mm-hmm. I was fascinated by this recently. Alan Groves is a U, in, from the U, UK, gave a talk on it, and I. And it really pointed out that what and it was talking about our, the length of our guts, you know, the, the whole intestinal system, and how it varies. So a cow has a lot of fermentation that occurs in the in in, in the foregut, and a gorilla has it all in the cecum or the hindgut. And so they've got the, the cows, because this is right up your alley, ruminants. I mean, you should be able to tell me all of this stuff. But ultimately, the preferred fuel of us all is, um, I'll come back one step. All, all living creatures have the same biochemical pathway of called the Krebs cycle for taking food, fuel into energy that our body can utilize. And so we take either carbohydrate, protein, or fat, gets converted into acetyl-CoA, goes into the thing called the Krebs cycle, described in the 1930s to 50s. And that's the fuel that we all run on. It doesn't matter if you're an insect or a human or a cow or a gorilla. It's the same energy pathway. That's what links us all up. And as I say, God was not you know, stupid enough to make us dependent on one of those fuels, which is carbohydrate, which is seasonally available. So we've got this tribrid, tribrid engine. It's hard to say that. You know, we can run just as effectively on carbs, proteins, or fats. Mm-hmm. But as it turns out, the preferred fuel of our body, which is what's able to be sourced naturally, is probably about 70 to 80% fat, 20 to 30% protein and very little carbohydrate. Because carbohydrate in nature is very only seasonally available and arguably in, over the last couple of million years only available with seasonal fruit. You know, if anybody tries to eat a bit of wheat or grain or barley or it just breaks your teeth. You, know, it, you might it, find the not... honey tree from time to time. But... Oh, yeah, well, that's right. You've got to find... If you, I'm very happy if you want to eat honey... As long as you go and climb the tree in the wild whilst you're naked, right, or in your loincloth, it's an ugly thought, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, but nonetheless, um, in the loincloth, and you want to get that honey and then suck it out of the wax and break it open with your hands, I'm all for it, okay? Because yeah. when you do that, it'll generally be the warmer climate, it'll be the sun will be out and you'll actually have the sunlight available to metabolize the byproducts of fructose. Mm-hmm. That's on my inflammation talk. So we don't, uh, without going down that biochemistry, yeah. Yeah. we're meant with we, the times of plenty when fruits available in nature is the time that we're designed to stuff our faces with it, gorge ourselves upon it, drives behavior so that we can turn it into fat for winter hibernation. Mm-hmm. The trouble is we've now made, sugar and carbs available 24 hours a day 365 days a year 
And that's why, you know, long and short, we're overweight and obese. I want to cycle back to the, the, the term vegetarian. I, I think that what's happened is we've taken omnivore and given it this name vegetarian, right? And I think that in part is because we want to think better about being an omnivore. We're still eating animal source foods. It's just some of those we'll eat and feel okay about. You know, uh, maybe it's because we won't eat red meat and we feel okay eating eggs and poultry and fish and whatever. So that's a vegetarian. You go vegan and that's something else completely. So where, where did Western concept of vegetarian, quote unquote, and that means veganism by my understanding, but I could be wrong. We could talk about that, drive the score up a little bit. Um, where did that primarily come from because it's not as recent as many people might think it is there's a big difference between eastern and western vegetarianism the eastern vegetarianism they still eat small amounts of meat and but it's you know the, the animals are, it tend to be at the end of their lives that, that it's respected and it's ceremonial and it, it and it's a whole cultural experience there but as, as, as that whole Eastern uh, vegetarianism is drifting, we actually look at the fastest growing rates of obesity and diabetes in the world, and they tend to be associated with those Eastern cultures, you know, China um, uh, and Philippines, uh, Thailand, uh, even Japan. So Japan's sort of holding its own at the moment, but they're still in a bit of strife. But the fastest growing rates in, rates in the world are, you know, are in China is a it's not working. Eastern vegetarianism is not working. But Western vegetarianism was born out of religious ideology. And it's not actually based on any science. And that whole red meat, I, I've actually come up with a hashtag, hashtag red meat matters. You know, we, it's just meat. But we've, again, it comes back to, we've all of a sudden discriminating against meat based on its colour. You know, it's, it's politically incorrect, and I, I realise it's a slightly sensitive topic. But why on earth are we discriminating against red meat versus white meat versus green meat versus orange meat? It's got, it's not at a structural level. When you bring everything back to biochemistry, it's just meat. You know, it's a combination of protein, very little carbohydrate in the form of glycogen, and a variety of fats which are saturated fat, monounsaturated fat, and Poly, and polyunsaturated fat. And the fact that we people demonize it because it's red, but you find the same things in avocado. You find, you know, so how can you have saturated fats in avocado that are bad for you and saturated fats in red meat or white meat, which are, ba which are bad, good, bad. It's just, it's not based on science or biochemistry. It's based on opinion. Okay. And, well, uh, and this is largely Belinda's work of actually uncovering the vested interests of how we've been shaping our dietary guidelines. And as it turns out, our dietary guidelines started effectively in October 23, 1917, with the for formation of the American Dietetics Association. And when you realise that that association was pretty well formed by uh, uh, Lena Cooper, who was working... I had been working for John Harvey Kellogg and Co. leading up to it. And you realise that 
the dietary guidelines that then followed suit and the dietitians associations of the world that followed suit were all modelled on the American one and it was started by essentially a vegan woman who was working for a vegan organisation. It was called vegetarian at the time, but they were very anti-meat. And the anti-meat agenda stems back to the temperance movement, 1850s, 1860s, which was the demonisation of meat by the Adventist church based on the um, uh, hallucinations and visions of Ellen G. White, who was their, their, um, their prophetess. Mm. Well, this work's interesting because when you actually go back to that temperance movement, it was very much the development that the people were coming in from the, the, the land to the cities. Um, you couldn't get adequate uh, water because the water sanitation wasn't good. So it tended to be that uh, uh, alcohol became blended into the beers and the rums and the spirits because you could drink that without getting sick. So you then had a whole group of people that were moving into the cities who were slightly drunk all the time. And they got up to mischief because they were away from their families. And the temperance movement came along to try and quell some of those you know, lustful periods of society. At the same time, you couldn't get fresh meat in the cities. So it would come in from the country and it would be salted and it would actually be bad for you. So this concept of meat being bad for you, meat being evil, was sort of born out of a time when you didn't have refrigeration, you didn't have good preservation techniques, you had long transport period, you had a period of disquiet in society where the men folk were moving off the land into the cities and the temperance movement was born. But out of the result of that, the Adventist church became very powerful and have continued to do so. And they had their thoughts placed originally on meat causes masturbation, meat causes violence, meat causes cancer, mm. but it was really probably cancer of the soul rather than cancer of the people, of the body, in retrospect. But nonetheless, that message that meat causes cancer, that then flowed on, you know, back into the early 19th century, that meat causes um, that cancer, then meat causes cardiovascular disease. And now we've got meat causes climate change. When you realise there's been one group of people, well-meaning, but nonetheless bad science, out there to prove the visions of Ellen G. White, going about their ways. And everyone thinks, okay, who's the Adventist church? And actually, not. the Adventist church actually turns out to be the second biggest educator in the world after the Catholic church. They're pacifists. They're, very, they're all about making that um, medical education is the right arm of the church. And if you can convince people about the health benefits of living, then you can convince them to come across into the church. They effectively own the cereal industry of the world, or they you know, initiate it because it's 101 cereal companies were born in Battle Creek, Michigan, virtually all by the Adventist groups. They effectively own the soy industry of the world. China, Harry Miller, Harry China Miller spent a lot of time there and then brought soy back. So our soy product, particularly the soy infant formulas, were virtually born out of the Adventist church. They were heavily involved in the fake meat industry. So the first fake meat analogues were uh, developed by... Um, John Harvey Kellogg in 1890s to 1910s, 
not analogs, not meats. Mm. So we've got them, uh, and I'll, I'll leave Belinda's thunder there. She's found out another massive area that they're involved in. And they're also vertically integrated now in the farming practices, the food industry, the processed food industry, and then also into the medicinal side. Massive group, highly influential, just sliding underneath the radar. But there's members of the, who have been advising the US government the, um, since the 1920s. Uh, Lena Cooper was the chief dietitian for the US Defence Forces for many, many years, <coughs> a couple of decades, I think. She was writing the textbooks for the first 30 years of dietetics for the world. We've had people on the move. Um, um, Jones Sabat, he's been heavily involved in the latest round of US dietary guidelines and actually involved in that committee, that committee of four that was looking at the saturated fat meat aspect without declaring their conflict of interest. You've got people advising the US Congress, the last few US presidents. It's like this, just in the ear. <laughs> Vegetarian's good, meat's bad, meat causes cancer, meat causes... Um, meat causes violence, meat causes cardiovascular disease, and this latest drift is meat causes climate change. And you and I know that that's, you know, ruminants are going to save us, not kill us. So I think it was 88. Um, I, so, you know, let me play the, 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 the slow pitch guy here and say that well, gee, I mean, the American was a, the Academy of Dietetics or whatever the name of the organization was, came together and put out a statement that vegan and vegetarian diets could be every bit as healthful as uh, omnivorous diets, including animal source foods. So surely there's, I mean, what's the, what's the story of co potential conflict of interest along with what you were just talking about with the SDA um, and, and that organization and that statement, that, that story to just sort of let people know what it can look like when you, as you said in a recent presentation, when you understand the rule book. Well, it, it was both in the US and the Australian <coughs> guidelines. They both came out with it, <coughs> but it failed to declare that every author on there was either <coughs> um, Seventh-day Adventist or a couple of them were working for the processed food industry or both. And so opinion and ideology, it shouldn't come into it. I mean, conflict of interest, you should declare what they are. And most people think of financial. <coughs> Excuse me. But if you're actually going to have a religious ideology and a belief <coughs> that if you live this way, it will give you salvation and that Christ will return. And I'm not trying to take the mickey out of the Adventists. I mean, people can have their belief. But if it's going to be applied across the board to the wider population, <clears throat> and the dietary guidelines of the US are pretty well implemented then right across the US and they flow on to the most of the Western world, they should be based on science, not on religious ideology. And I... And that's Certainly, it. That's, and it's yeah. all we've called out. I, I, I and, mean, and vegetarianism no, is, is not is not is not a whole food, nutrient appropriate diet. Yeah, because you miss I, out I, on stuff. 
I mean no disrespect for anyone's personal beliefs. I think, however, it's fair to be open about what your motives in doing, especially when there is that kind of belief-based conflict. Um, I think it's fair to question it when that becomes uh, a justification for public policy that affects so many things. Many people look at the dietary guidelines. I've heard them say, well, it doesn't really matter. Nobody follows them. And in, in one of your presentations, you, you made the very clear case that these things can be seen to have effects far beyond what we're told to eat because everything sort of lines up along with what we're being told we should eat. Um, well, see, I actually think we have followed the dietary guidelines. <clears throat> so everyone, you know, that's the argument. Our society is not following the dietary guidelines. <clears throat> Again, US data, 1974 to 2011, something like that, you know, long data. In the US, which is pretty well the same here in Australia, <clears throat> you have increased your cereal and grain consumption. You've increased your fruit and veg con vegetable consumption. You've reduced your meat consumption and you've dramatically reduced your red meat consumption. You've done exactly what you're supposed to do. So when people say, oh, at an individual basis, they're not doing it. As a society, we've done it. And as a society, we've done exactly that. We've gotten bigger, heavier, more chronic disease, hashtag fail. You know, it has not worked. And mm. so that that's the argument. And so therefore the argument and the you know latest US dietary guidelines, oh let's go even further down the path of this irrational behavior because the people aren't doing it. No, they have done it. Let's do a reverse, you know. At some point in time when you're driving down a superhighway against all the traffic you will work out it's not a good idea. And this is the thing which astounds me about the medical profession. <clears throat> We're advocating for fresh food, not processed food. <clears throat> I don't know if you've said, I've, I've been, again, silly enough, arrogant enough to rewrite the dietary guidelines for the world mm. in one sentence. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> when you, I have actually described LCHF <clears throat> keto I lose my voice when I talk too much. You have to talk more. Okay. And <clears throat> we should eat fresh, local, seasonal, whole food mm -hmm. based on our culture and environment, mm -hmm. reducing added sugar and processed food. Mm -hmm. That is a description of LCHF keto. Well, no wonder you're in trouble. You're a radical. But tell me, tell me what's... You know, that's sort of how we evolved over well, a couple of million years. Yeah, yeah. so there's a couple things that one could point to. And, and these are minor quibbles. They're, they're not disagreements. It's just I would point out that um, there's a large number of people that don't live where the sorts of foods that would be part of an appropriate diet are produced, and there's nothing wrong with consuming them. Not processed, but what you could afford, what you could get. Um, there are people who live in parts of the world where they produce as a fundamental part of their economy more food than they need. And so part of the commerce system is the, the exchange of that food through commerce to people in other parts of the world so that 
people can make a living. So I, I, I understand the goal, but I also need to point out that, you know, when you live in a state where there's more cattle than people, for example, a certain number of them are going to go somewhere ultimately. And, hmm. and that's not hmm. a bad thing. Um, but I certainly understand, I think I understand the thrust of, of what you're advocating for. Um, and I, I think that we could achieve that by going to whatever market is available to us. Again, people live under different circumstances and have different economic realities. And so whatever is affordable and accessible and appropriate, as you said, for their personal background and cultural history and personal choices, there are foods that are available in many, many markets that are appropriate for people who are trying to eat so that they ensure adequate essential nutrition and attain, restore or maintain metabolic health, which are two goals that I think we should all be able to agree on, regardless of where mm -hmm. on the diet spectrum we want to place ourselves um, or if we can't agree on those two then maybe we need to have a different a, a, a deeper conversation because who would argue about adequate essential nutrition i understand there's a lot of details underneath each one of those hmm. um, when you say that you know protein intake has remained whatever uh, I just want to say, yeah, but the red meat's gone down and the poultry's gone up and we're counting plant source protein as if it's equivalent to animal source protein when everyone it's understands not. it isn't. So maybe we're even consuming less, but it's hard to tease that out of the data, right? Um, but those are efforts we can get into. <laughs> I, I, um, the, the points of you know, giving people some guidelines of what they can do so that this doesn't have to be complicated. And I think we were kind of talking about this earlier that there's, there's a lot now in this kind of metabolic health and human nutrition space where people are, you know, they're, 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 they're make, they end up making it too complicated. Um, and so hmm. that becomes a barrier to entry for people. And, um, things that make it simpler. So the idea that you you express that as is certainly one that makes it, um, you know, uh, accessible to people. And and in that, I can certainly support it. I, I sort of say, if it comes in a cardboard box or a plastic bag and has a label on it, you want to avoid it. Yeah, but and I realize that, I'll that, push back and say that, you know, shredded cheese can come in a plastic bag, um, that meat when it comes from the, the packing plant, not only comes in plastic, but it comes in, you know, cardboard. Um, and, you know, you could argue about that. But part of the fact that that happens is I can go to the store and buy high quality, healthful meat. Um, for a relatively low cost. Um, and I understand there's lots of other things. We no longer have the meat cutters in every grocery store, mm. plus or minus. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. But I, I think it's about thinking about if 
again, if your if your food that, that you buy, you recognise what it comes from. Yeah, it's another concept. Yeah. Or what it takes to produce it. Oh, well, that, that, that's that whole knowledge base that we, we're all trying to expand. It almost drifts into the embodied cost of food. Have you heard, heard me talk about that? that? Uh, no, I don't think so. So the, the, if, um, embodied energies is something which is considered in the building industry, so in, agriculture, uh, in architecture. So how much it takes to take something out of the ground turn it into the product that you build with and then it goes back into the ground. That's the embodied cost or embodied energy. of it. And I'd like to think of us, at, I'm still trying to find someone who wants to do a PhD in this because I, I, I don't have time to do it, is that work out the cost of taking the food out of the ground and then produce, bringing it to us and looking at the health cost of that food. And we may find that an ice cream, instead of being worth $1, is actually worth, should be priced at $20. And a piece of meat, red meat, which is currently priced at $20, should probably be priced at $1. When you look at the whole spectrum of that, because at the moment what we do is we, the cost of food reflects the cost of production. It doesn't actually reflect the cost of what that food does to us in the long term. Yeah. So that's just what I'm talking having, about, the whole yeah. life spectrum of a food. It, it gets tricky though, doesn't it? Because oh, that's, going to, that's going to, um, <clears throat> as I was just having a conversation the other day about sustainable healthcare. And that's probably something we could get into what, what the healthcare system looks like in, in your part of the world. But um, people doing that kind of work <clears throat> frequently on board the received, you know, wisdom of what constitutes a healthy diet. So when they start looking at the cost of disease, they immediately assume without examination that it's, you know, plenty of whole grains, you know, that we, we have millions of people dying every year from a fiber deficiency, apparently, um, you know, that they work this stuff out from the nutritional epidemiology studies and say, this is how many people are dying from this diet. So we need to change this one. So with, with that conversation that I was having with that person, they gave me the figure that in the United States, the average car, the, the average pharmaceutical carbon footprint for a type two diabetic is two metric tons of CO2 equivalent per year which you can work out the math, that's essentially a car. Mm. You, you can work out the math as I have, and I'm waiting to verify it. So tune in for details later, but it might be as much as 50 million metric tons of CO2 equivalent that could be eliminated by getting people off of diabetic medications. Mm. And, and, and that's, I'll put air quotes around the word just pharmaceutical cost. That's not the impact on all the other aspects of transport or infrastructure or energy use or, or medical waste that comes from kidney dialysis, for example, and those many other things. It, and surely hasn't begun to look at the other aspect of sustainability that needs to be looked at, which is the societal effect of, 
people burdened with chronic disease, shortened lifespan, the impact that has on children, the impact of less activity potential because we're now with artificial limbs or we're, you know, it, it, and it goes on and on. We, we need lots of people working across this whole space to tell this full story. Um, but clearly the, the, you know, the cost of producing um, food, when we have those conversations, we have to be able to include what's the impact on the people you feed. And, and by my understanding from what I've been able to gather by trying to work in that space, we don't, we don't go there. We just, we, we shut it off at the end, uh, you know, at the farm gate or the ranch gate. And then it goes to somebody who processes it. And then it goes to retail and they can quantify each one of those, but then they all stop at the human impact because now you get involved with, you know, people like you and the, the nutritionists. Well, the, 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 at the big picture thing, it's very hard to quantify <clears throat> at the individual level. It's easy because when you adopt that lifestyle change and I'll, encourage people down that low carb keto pathway then you feel the benefits a yourself you you can this term de-prescribing you come off medication so you get a personal saving we've costed this over and over it does not cost more to eat this way because if you're buying your fresh local seasonal food you're not buying lots of takeaway you're not dining out a lot you're eating your fresh food in your family environment, in your community, you know, all those things which bring together. It's actually not more expensive to eat that way. But you actually get the cost benefits yourself. number of people who say, look, I don't have to pay for prescriptions and drugs. And in Australia, they're subsidised. Here in the US, they're often not. So if you can come off medications, particularly in the US, you're going to be saving yourself a lot of money. You made me think about something there. Our last Dietary Guidelines review panel they asked very specifically two questions in the review. One is, what are the benefits of cereal and grain for the people? And the other question is, what are the detrimental effects of red meat consumption? That were two very only two specific questions. You know, it's not a, what are the benefits and risks of cereal and grain? What are the benefits and risks of meat? It was, what are the benefits of cereal and grain, and what are the detrimental effects of red meat? And they would, and they were the questions. the question, yeah, yeah. And so I mean, this is the whole bias. Now that's the same thing in the U.S. If you if you coin the question in one way, you can only get one answer. Now, when did you stop beating your wife? Yes, yeah. And so it's just, and so therefore, it's this bias that comes into, and people, have, most people have got no idea what the dietary guidelines are, let alone how they've been formulated and what questions were being asked of those people who are actually not declaring their conflicts of interest. And this has happened, as I said, since 1917. And it, <clears throat> it, it's accelerating, it seems <clears throat> to me, that we're, we're seeing, well, as you've pointed out, that uh, we, we now don't talk about meat in our guidelines anymore. We talk about protein foods. <clears throat> And, and that food, those guidelines determine what's served in hospitals, nursing homes, schools, defence forces, prisons. And if you don't serve that food, 
And I, I think I've, I know we've now got a prison population that's overweight and obese with diabetes, which is having to be medicated. I, 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 th I forget the exact figure, but a substantial <laughs> portion of the people who would be eligible age-wise to enlist in the military are not eligible because of weight. Yes. So, so, you know, the point's been made that back in World War II era, we, we had a substantial problem emerging from the, the Great Depression where too many potential people were underweight and now too many are overweight as well as all the other challenges. Um, I forget the number of the millions of people that the United States government feeds in one way or another every day. And it extends beyond the ones that you mentioned. It, it, it guides what foods we subsidize for people of low economic status. And so they can get subsidy to buy exactly the wrong kind of food. Um, and yet if they, you know, it, it's a challenge them for, for them to be able to afford the kinds of foods that we would advocate they need to eat more of. Now that's changing. There's little progress, but um, so these things are critical as, as you've mentioned that the people did try to follow them. Um, but it's also, in some also ways they were already trying to follow them before they came out. Cause they had already heard the message that started in the fifties and the sixties about what to eat to be healthy or to protect the environment or what have you. Well, it, it's actually repetitive, Peter. I, I'm, I'm, as you know, I, <clears throat> I quite like delving forwards and backwards. I've been doing a lot of reading about, <clears throat> about dirt, about our soil. Yes, please. How... It's not dirt. No, no, no. Your mother washes dirt out of your clothes. Soil is what we depend on for life. There's a book by, called Dirt by Montgomery. Um, I've forgotten his first name, but it's, I've just, it's very interesting. The evolution of civilization based on our soil. And um, pretty well, we've done it over and over and over. Again, Darrow Diamond wrote about this in a book called Collapse many years ago. I don't know if you ever read that. If we don't look after our soil, you know, um, the, the, the health of our soil determines the health of our food. The health of the food determines the health of the people. And same thing in the reverse. We have to sort out our soil. And even going back to Roman times, arguably the fall of the Roman Empire was due to its expansion beyond its agricultural capacity. And the erosion of soil came from bad farming practice. And so the, once we started that whole agricultural revolution 10,000 years ago, and we started cropping and graining, we've started introducing not only uh, erosion, but we've actually introduced poor health. So if you look at skeletons before 10,000 years ago, they didn't have osteoarthritis. Arthritis of joints was pretty well non-existent. And apart from the post-trauma, you know, someone, you know, one of our forebears had broken a leg or something and then developed a deformity and problems. But effectively, the changes we see in the bones now weren't that present pre-agricultural revolution. And one, I, I was telling you, I've just finished writing a book chapter for um, this textbook on, and I'm looking at musculoskeletal health issues. And the, if you look at osteoarthritis of joints, 
we're now recognizing osteoarthritis is related, is more of an inflammatory condition, more like rheumatoid arthritis. It's also tied up integrally with insulin and hyperinsulinemia and that whole metabolic syndrome. But if you look at the microscopic level in the actual cartilage, the damaging material is advanced glycation end products. It is the same end products which are actually associated with diabetes problems. But more importantly, it's a by, by it's a byproduct of carbohydrate ingestion. So we've actually got the damage occurring in our joints as a result of the byproduct of the food we eat. And the same thing actually happens in the tendons that come into our joints with the rotator cuff, Achilles tendon, tendons around the knee, tennis elbow. When you start looking at those tissues, you find exactly the same end products, advanced glycation end products causing the damage. What I did not find, and I was trying to look for the one, you know, one tick, one, one over. I could not find those end products in the, in the spine, in the discs of the spine. And I couldn't find them in what's called the menisci of the knee, which are the shock absorbers of the knee. And I thought that would just be wonderful and just tick all the boxes to say I could blame sugar and carbs on everything. But I can't. Okay, I'll be honest and say, I went looking, cognitive dissonance, whatever you, whatever you call it. But very clearly there's good science showing that the end products of carbohydrate ingestion are related to our arthritis of joints and tendonitis. There was a very good paper that came out of China earlier this year. So not everything, you know, there are good stuff that comes. And um, the um, showing that when you increase insulin, you increase inf inflammation in knee joints. And I know this paper wasn't written by a low carb group, but they were able to show very, very well osteoarthritis of the knee is related to the levels of insulin in the body. And that they, their argument was we should target insulin in reducing osteoarthritis. Now, you don't need to target insulin. You just need to stop eating carbohydrate. Your body won't produce the insulin. Right, right. And I've got so many stories of my own patients. And then we add in social media, thousands and thousands and thousands of people who actually have osteoarthritis of joints, knees, hips, shoulders, ankles, hands in particular. They reduce their carbohydrate intake. They lower their insulin levels their pain comes under control. They've still got a worn out joint, but they lose their pain. They improve their pain before they lose weight. The bonus is over a longer period of time, they lose weight. Um, and um, this, this, is, this is common. And it's, it's, so when people change their lifestyle and what they eat and they reduce their carbs, they get that immediate benefit that their joints don't hurt as much. So, there's, there was a um, um, lecture that I got to hear from a soil scientist, and he was explaining the history of soils in North Dakota. <clears throat> and he, what he said was the first people to try to farm there were bringing what they knew how to do with them. Understandable. They're, they were from back east or they were from Europe and, you know, they had just come directly to this part of the continent to, to try to farm. And so they didn't have, I mean, they had farming equipment that wasn't appropriate. They, they had a mindset that wasn't appropriate. They weren't used to the steady winds that could be there. They didn't have adapted varieties. And, and so they just began this process of, 
of degrading that resource. And then there were dust bowls in North Dakota, which kind of surprised me because I always thought of that as further south in the Oklahoma, you know, Kansas, uh, um, Colorado kind of space. But, but part of the reason for that lead-in is in, in some aspects of life, when we know better, we do better right? That it's hard to blame people for doing something that they didn't know any better about, right? But now we've got information that in many aspects of life would inform change and yet not in, in human health and human nutrition. We're still stuck in what I think you've called generational knowledge or learning. And Again, we've met in a certain community of people, so I'm very familiar with what happened to you. Um, but I'm hoping that people from my agricultural communities will get to hear what happened when you started telling people, and, and forgive me if this is not an appropriate summation, but you're dealing with people who are suffering from wounds due to diabetes or they have advanced diabetes or, or poorly managed blood sugar and you as a as a orthopedic surgeon are saying if you continue this way this is one likely outcome and if you try this other way you may not have to go down that path and yet you were not something happened to you so if you yeah, could look, tell more that. importantly I, I got sick and tired of chopping legs and feet and toes off on a, on a weekly basis. And these patients would be coming to me in, in my clinic. And it was called Fetke's Effed Up Fructose-Free Fungating Foot Folly Friday. I don't know what the effed up meant, okay? But it was... So, but literally every Friday in my clinic, there, there was... And I know it sounds dramatic, but there was a smell of rotting flesh in the clinic. And... I worked out this stuff about sugar. You can turn around your diabetes control today, this afternoon, by what you eat or what you don't eat. I'm looking after someone at the moment, one of my mates who, with his diabetes, and I put one of those glucose monitors on him. And I, you know, I'm giving him a hard time. He's got to send me the monitor every day. Anyway, guess how long it's taken for us to turn around his diabetes? Six hours. He's got control of his blood glucose again within six hours just by not eating sugar, carbs, bad food. So in this hospital setting, I've got these patients that I want to actually get them better. Unfortunately, by the time your toes and your feet are rotting off, your brains are rotting as well, your kidneys are gone. It's, not, it's almost too late. But in the same time frame, I've got a hospital that's serving them ice cream three times a day. And I'm going, would you just stop doing it? And I got involved in, in, in talking about this. I looked at the science because once you've got to take on a system, you've actually got to justify it. You've got to look at the science, the biochemistry. You've got to review everything, realize maybe my education's been wrong, which it was. And come back to biochemistry, come back to the Krebs cycle. You know, we, we can't argue about the old Krebs cycle. It keeps us all alive. Let's just look at that. And along the short of it, in... Um, San Francisco Airport, I can still remember we were traveling there, and Belinda and my daughter put me on Facebook. 
launched a website because we were waiting a few hours layover. And anyway, that's when the war started. Okay. Within 24 hours, I had um, someone from the sugar sweetened beverage industry come after me. Hmm. Within days, um, I was getting trolled. And certainly then within a, within a couple of years, as it turns out in retrospect, uh, I had the cereal industry here in Australia directly have me for targeting. And we've got those documents. So it's different when a celebrity chef or someone talks about oh, perils of sugar. But when I, an orthopedic surgeon who's sick and tired of amputating things starts getting public airing, and it was, you know, not just social media, there was something in the news and then there was something on television. All of a sudden, this actually meant something. Here's a surgeon that's sick and tired of it. A bit like the early days of smoking. And I did, all I thought was I'm just doing the right thing. And I didn't realise that I was going to become a target. I mean, that's my degree of naivety because it was so flaming obvious. We can turn around diabetes. I was involved in a national TV program where we turned it around. You know, and literally within, you know, on that program, it took us, I think, eight or 10 weeks to turn someone's diabetes around. He lost about 15 kilograms of weight, came off five medications. But you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to get people better. So I ended up being targeted by the cereal industry. I was reported to the medical board three times for being giving inappropriate advice. And ultimately, a finding was given against me because the expert witness actually was working for Sanitarium, the Adventist Church organisation here in Australia. And we're trying to point out this guy's biased, your information's wrong, here's the biochemistry, I've pretty well done a PhD on this stuff, I'm not wrong. They said, no, you're an orthopaedic surgeon, you don't know anything about biochemistry, you don't know anything about nutrition, you're wrong. You're, you're completely in it for the money, which we clearly weren't because I can tell you how many hundreds of thousands of dollars we've lost on this. But effectively, the medical board came down and said, you're not allowed to talk about this ever again, even if it's shown to be best practice. I then became a test case for two Senate inquiries into the whole process, bullying and harassment by the system. Um, and it took uh, ultimately nearly six years to get the whole thing overturned. And Tim Noakes in South Africa was going through a similar process. We both knew that we had to actually fight on. We both knew that we had to actually win our argument so that others could speak up. Because along the way, so many people were saying, I can't talk about low carb. I can't talk about challenging dietary guidelines. I certainly can't talk about keto. I certainly can't talk about helping people with diabetes by nutrition alone. And Anna Dahlquist in Sweden had been through a similar pathway a couple of years before us. It was really important that we broke the back of this. And that's probably my claim to disclaim, you know, my, to, 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 inf, to be of infamity. And Belinda's work is very came out of was born out of that. She said, "Look, you, you and Tim, you're talking about science. All these people around the world, you're talking biochemistry, yet you're getting hammered." And so she started looking at. Well, she originally looked at the, who was the expert witness who was speaking against me. He seemed like a reasonable guy, but as it turned out, he was working for the cereal industry, and she had no idea because we originally thought it was just the sugar and cereal and the carb industry after. 
we had no idea that it was actually all about anti-meat as well. So part of this message of low carving isn't just to cut your sugar and carbs. You have to replace it with a fuel, and that fuel we're talking about is pro-meat. Mm -hmm. And that's when, if we started delving into religious ideology, we've opened up Pandora's box from a completely naive state of just trying to improve people's health and diabetes by lifestyle change. There's, there's a government research uh, organization in Australia, I forget the acronym, um, but while you were going through this, didn't they have a popular publication on yeah, the subject? The CSIRO here in Australia. So right in the midst of it, I've actually got a picture of me in front of a poster where the CSIRO low-carb handbook was brought out. At the very time that I'm charged, and in a Senate inquiry, because I was we're flying, you remember those days when people used to fly places? I've heard of them. Um, yeah, and I'm trying, look, here's the picture. Here it is. Here, the, what's interesting is, is one of the two authors of that was in our lounge room a couple of years beforehand, and I was explaining the fineries of low carb. So not only am I getting charged and found guilty of the crime of advocating low carb for reversing diabetes, the very author of that book's actually there as Australian bestseller from our peak science body. And if, if all of that sounds stupid, it is. It's obviously very personal. And people say, oh, he must be dangerous. It must be something else. Go, no, it's just about sugar and carbs. But this is, it's, it was very important for big food slash big pharma. I caught up with someone yesterday from the pharmaceutical industry who's he's working for a diabetes, a diabetes arm. And I can go into a diabetes meeting and they'll know I'm there. Yeah, he, he actually asked me, he said, oh, were you, in, were you in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago? Because the word's gone out that there was this orthopedic surgeon that got up and hammered everyone. You know, we, we, we can't afford to keep doing what we're doing. We can't afford to keep poisoning the people based on really lousy nutritional advice. Yeah. I, and I'm, and, I, and we're, we're happy to call it out. Yeah, and, because it's and, not sustainable for the people. It's not sustainable for our agriculture. It's not sustainable for our soil. And it's certainly not sustainable for our children and grandchildren. And that's really what it boils down to. And precisely so. I, I, I want to emphasize that sustainability aspect. Um, one, I think that's just been used as a cudgel. Um, I, I think it's in, in some ways, as you've already said, it was first, it was cancer, then it was something, then it's this. And, and it's, it's still that same attitude of, of it's wrong to eat meat based on what I believe, not on any evidence. I've had people ask me from the audience, and these are people with doctorates, and they'll ask things like, how could we have gotten to this point? And what you've shared is a peek behind the curtain of how this has happened. And it is the reality. And if we're going to get to someplace better, we all, more people have to be at least informed so that more people will be able to push back against what I just see is this 
um, increasing message that's it's part of grade school curriculum now that it's just a given that you know meat is what's driving climate change and it's just it's just factually incorrect um but it comes in as well you want to be healthy too don't you i mean you want the win-win you want to be healthy and save earth as and so all of that um the You've mentioned um, websites, so let's make sure that we get the the websites named where people could find you or the work that Belinda's been doing. I think um, looking on YouTube, you find most of our talks. I did one last year, which I had to actually do, called The Failure of Medical Education. Do you want the red pill or the blue pill? But that's... Because when you understand how we've gotten to this, as I say, I, I, I based my, my, our, our, our concepts are based around biochemistry and history. And when you actually understand the biochemistry, then it's a no-brainer. And then when you look at history, you can then work out how on earth have we gotten into this dumb spot. So... Now I realise that my medical education was corrupted since 1910 by the pharmaceutical industry. Our nutritional education was completely um, taken on board by a religious ideology. Then I understand how we come to this stuff. But if you know, that's, that's you use the term generational education. You know, that's I came up with that. You believe your teachers, and you believe your teachers before them. You certainly believe your textbooks. They couldn't be wrong. But when it's, when it's just been over and over and over, um, you, know, you, you know the byline at the end of my email is that science evolves by being challenged, not by being followed. And that's what we've got to keep doing. You know, we should never rest on our laurels and actually we say, actually, where am I wrong? Where, where could it be wrong? That's called learning. So um, Belinda and I both have got YouTube channels where the talks are there. Belinda's work can be found at a website called isupportgary.com, <clears throat> which she, sounds corny, but she launched that to get me off all of that. I have a website well and truly out of date called nofructose.com. <laughs> I just need a year off to get it up to date. Is, but it, anyway, is it called it, a carb website? <laughs> it could be. It could be. Is that 2-1? No, 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 because no. I and, suffer um, the same thing. But both of us um, are very active on Twitter, uh, primarily. So Gary and Belinda Fetke. I find Twitter very useful. It's very quick, gives us information, allows us all to relate. Um, we're both on Facebook. Belinda still has a Facebook page called Belinda Fetke No Fructose, which was taken over from when I was called Gary Fetke No Fructose. We're able to just literally... This is when the whole hospital, the whole medical board came down upon me because of that website or that Facebook page was quite powerful. So I just drew a line through Gary and wrote Belinda in handwriting. And I realized I'm just extending my middle finger to the system in, when we were doing that. But they could do nothing about that because Belinda's an ex-nurse, not registered under the, you know, the APRA, the medical board, the governing body. So it was really just, okay, you're really going to silence me. Well, Belinda's going to be the voice. And she, she, she's, you've, you've met her. She's a powerful. I, I don't mess with her. You know? <laughs> you're a smart man. We're, we're 40 years next week, actually. Congratulations. Yeah, so, um, yeah, that's, um, 
yeah, she's a good, good, good soul, and um, and uh, and she and her work on uncovering all this. Again, that website I, I support Gary.com. For those that are interested, it's fascinating her work that she keeps uncovering. And um, uh, so, I mean, you'll get her on, and she's you know far better looking than me and far more interesting. Uh, I'm I'm very much looking forward to that conversation as well. Um, I miss you. I, I miss you both as plural. I, I miss a lot of the people that I've gotten to speak through this. So I'm grateful for you giving me the opportunity to kind of touch base again. And, well, look, and, I, I can give you a, a virtual hug here. And oh. uh, we're well and truly at the social distancing at the same uh, time. Could, okay? could, could we be any more distanced? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I... There's, there's no way to really cover everything in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, I hope that this has been an introduction. I try to tell people that, you know, if we could get this right, I think that everything else is, is doable. I think that um, we... One of one of my principles is that you can either focus on minimizing human impact or you can focus on maximizing human flourishing. And I think that we can get to minimized impact through the maximizing flourishing because, you know, prosperous societies can afford to invest in conservation and those sorts of efforts. Um, it, not, 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 can't, not can afford, must. Well, it, indeed, yes. Indeed, yes. Um, but if you have a top-down approach that says, oh, we know what's best, therefore you must do this, then you find the nonsense of putting the world on a macrobiotic diet because that's going to save the earth. And when, in fact, what we know is it's going to harm human beings, it's going to restrict their development and their potential and, and all sorts of other things. This has been demonstrated and documented. I've yet to find anyone who can point me towards a high quality piece of evidence pointing to the hazard, the, the, the health or um, uh, harms to humans coming from too much animal source food in the diet. I have a stack of high quality evidence um, pointing toward the harms that come from too little. And mm. I, I think that a lot of what we've been seeing is exactly that lack, but we haven't yet gotten people to look at it that way. They're, they're looking for other things. And, and so I'm, I'm impressed by people who are talking to me about hyperinsulinemia as being a unifying theory of chronic disease. And until we've addressed that, I'm not persuaded that we can know anything else really about human health impacts until we've addressed the 80% of the signal. Right. The other things, I'm sure they're there, but how could you tell that if you haven't addressed that massive insult? It goes back to the primary root cause. <clears throat> Treat the big picture stuff. The elephant in the room, literally, is hyperinsulinemia. But if you're waiting for a top-down approach, our work's identified how much of a struggle that's going to be. That's not, it's not a conspiracy theory if it's a fact. Mm. Mm. 
And well, it's also just confluence, what confluence of interests doesn't yeah, have so to be it, a conspiracy. It, it, it's just, it's what it, it does. It, it sort of, it, it, it's not going to change. However, the individual can change today yes. and take that to yourself, to your family, lead by example. Or as Belinda says, you know, hashtag be noisy with me. Hmm. It's, it's literally, that's what it's about. Individuals can make the decision as to what their future is going to be today. For the vast majority of people, we're very fortunate, you know, you're hmm. in the US, or I'm in Australia. We, we, we have the ability to make those choices. Many people around the world don't. Yeah, and but I'm unless we lead by, by example, like, yeah. we don't have any hope. And that's the really Noakes, the Noakes Foundation, Eat Better South Africa. These sorts yeah. of things need to be uh, replicated in other parts of the low and middle income countries because this is what the 2050 sort of um, point is that we need to um, increase the the affordability access uh, of animal source food. We need to increase the the efficiency of those systems so that that lowers the environmental impact, um, all of those things. But we need to understand who and who is going to be speaking against that and why. And for that, your example and Belinda's research are invaluable. So thank you. I, both. Everyone's invited to my table to eat. Hmm. You just need to identify which hat you're wearing. Oh, perfect. Thank you. And, that, and, and a lot of people, to be fair, to be fair to the system, a lot of people don't know which hat they're wearing. Because if you've had your education completely conflicted, mm -hmm. and if everything around you has been telling you one thing, then a lot of people, a lot of, because there are a lot of doctors, and I'll use that example, who have heard my talk about the failure of medical education, gone, oh my God, really? Really have I been conned? We call, and it's the same thing, those doctors who come on board with low carb or keto or, or not just doctors, but healthcare professionals, they get angry, first of all. I don't know if you've seen that. They go through an angry phase of going, I've been conned. I've actually done harm to my patients. That's what I did. I used to be the cake judge. I'm sorry. I'm here. All of I'm doing now is to try and make amends to all of those people I poisoned by, by encouraging chocolate cake consumption. Sod father grants you dispensation. <laughs> over, over, over a fine steak, okay? Yes, exactly. Um, I, I say that there are some people are sincerely wrong. They believe what they're saying and mm -hmm. doing. And that's a caution to me because of I could be that. Um, I sure I am in some aspects. Um, but there are people involved here who know the truth, and yet they persist in the lie. Um, I don't want to drop this guy in the, in the pickle too much. But if you work for a pharmaceutical industry, I, know, I actually know a few people in this spot, so I'm not dropping an individual in there. I know some people who have left the pharmaceutical industry, so they can't stay there because they know there's a better way. They cannot and, go to work prostituting themselves. Well, that's a big word, okay, when they know that they can actually get people better by just changing the way they eat. 
and that's um and those people who've left those industries you know they're brave souls because they put their you know, pay packet on the line mm-hmm. and arguably that's what we did along the way i you know i one of the th- arguments I had was, if I'm really dangerous, deregister me. Hmm. Now, otherwise, apologise. Ultimately, I got the apology. But yeah, yeah. it took six years before they realised, actually, maybe he wasn't wrong. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. No, I'm, I'm pretty sure you weren't. So <laughs> thank you. Um, I've but we really could, in- I, couldn't do, I couldn't do that without Belinda. I of couldn't do that not. without you. I couldn't do it without the, the, the hundreds of thousands of people that expressed their support to us along the way, because you know that a lone voice doesn't have any any chance. So social media may have been my crime, but it was also my saviour. Mm-hmm. You know, the people people got behind us, yes. and and for that we'll be forever grateful for that. And I uh, a recent conversation they gave me the that this is the decade of data over dogma. Yes. And I, I hope that's true. And seeing just what you related and hopefully we can all find some way to make that a reality so that this um, situation can be reversed. Um, and again, uh, thank you for your time and what you've been doing and um, I sent Belinda a hug. I hope you've delivered it. Um, I'll check. So It'll be a hell of a lot more personal than the one I gave you, okay? Okay, good, <laughs> good. Thank you so much, my friend, and um, all the best. All the best for you in continuing this, um, this podcasting journey. And I hope you reach out. As we talked about, this is about getting the message out of the bubble, out of the echo chamber, and, and, and moving it beyond. That's the hope. Great to see you, Peter. Bye-bye, mate. Bye-bye.